Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. On today's show, we're doing something a little different. This time, I'm pleased to share with you the first in a series of correspondence segments from our very first correspondent of 2021. In the near future, we'll have a rotating cast of correspondents bringing you witty, insightful segments on a variety of topics ranging from privacy to conventional yet questionable common sense. If you'd like to be a correspondent for the Speaking of Bitcoin show or have any questions or comments on today's segment, send me an email at adam at speakingofbitcoin.show. And we'll be back next week with more full episodes. Thanks for listening. Hello there. I'm George Frankly, and I'm going to take a look at how even the best and brightest people can make truly stupid decisions and terrible predictions and what we can learn from them. This is Dare to be Stupid. This week, Moneyball Revisited, or that's how we've always done it. Ever start a new job and have that one coworker, the one who's clearly a very old hand at earning a very young wage? The guy who's going to take you under his wing and teach you the ins and outs of dishwashing because he's been dishwashing quite a bit longer than a person should really be dishwashing. They're always full of just slightly questionable advice. The sort that makes you ask, wait, why do we do that? And the answer is always the same. Because that's how we've always done it. That's how we've always done it. Tied neck and neck for the title of most discomforting six words in the English language, alongside the similarly worrisome Untitled Tron sequel starring Jared Leto. It's not simply shorthand for a bad decision. It's a disease of the mind. Now, take this fumbling catchphrase off the lips of a man explaining why it's fine to eat cocktail shrimp out of the grease trap and imagine them being spoken with millions of dollars on the line. You are now picturing the exact plot of Michael Lewis's 2003 bestseller, Moneyball. Moneyball, like so many great works, has been distilled by pop culture to the point of parody. Much the way that the Western hive mind has abbreviated eight hours of Indiana Jones down to Man in Hat Runs from Boulder. The Cliff's Notes version of Moneyball, in most people's minds, is just the obligatory Simpsons reference. Little League coach Lisa Simpson uses wacky calculations to predict precisely where a fly ball will land and places a semi-lucid Ralph Wiggum in its path. Now, a decade after the film, and almost two since the book, it's high time we revisit it and recall what that real message was. That message had very little to do with complex mathematics or any predictive wizardry. That message is a simple parable about the pitfalls of... That's how we've always done it. Moneyball, the word itself, referred to a growing crisis in Major League Baseball. The sport was degenerating into little more than a cash race and not much of a, well, sport. The teams with the biggest budgets were inevitably the biggest winners because they could afford the biggest stars. If a no-budget team stumbled onto a rising star, they'd be poached by a wealthy team the next season. On the field, a broke team was a rich team's punching bag, and off the field, they were their livestock farms. Billy Bean, general manager of the perpetually cash-strapped Oakland Athletics, suspected that the baseball market was neither efficient nor logical. You don't need to be a baseball aficionado to see what he saw. Teams were competing to make seven-figure offers to pitchers with the fastest fastballs and batters with the highest batting averages. Big numbers were paid for big numbers, and it had been that way for decades. Talent scouts looked for fast pitchers and strong hitters, quick legs and sturdy arms. Isn't that what wins baseball games? No, said Billy Bean. No, it isn't. That's, um, that's a dramatic interpretation. I have no idea what Billy Bean sounds like. When you cut away the fluff and beauty and hometown apple pie whatever of baseball, the underlying logic is very simple. Scoring runs wins baseball games, and getting struck out can lose baseball games. And a cursory glance at a century of statistics told him that the strongest hitters weren't making the most runs, and the fastest pitchers weren't making the most strikeouts. 
Valuations within the player market were not just wrong, they were sometimes strikingly backwards. Household terms like batting average had no actual connection to performance. Why? Baseball was being hobbled by something called the representativeness heuristic. You see, no matter how often your teachers told you that the human brain is an amazing biological calculator, it absolutely is not. The brain is a quick-firing pattern recognizer. It identifies familiar bits and pieces and then fills in the gaps. It's what Daniel Kahneman, the father of behavioral economics, calls a machine for jumping to conclusions. The representativeness heuristic is the innate human bias towards comfortable stereotypes. It biases our fleshy minds towards answers that look and feel like they fit the part. When our brains are supposed to be looking for the answer to a question, they tend to gravitate towards the image that best represents the answer. Baseball talent scouts weren't digging through data and asking, how will this performance contribute towards winning? No. They were watching college ball games and asking, what does good baseball look like? What does a good baseball player look like? That process doesn't conjure up an Excel sheet. That conjures up a portrait. Hell, a caricature. It produces an image of a well-muscled man in his early 20s throwing blazing fast pitches and knocking home runs into the stands, because that's what good baseball looks like. So why, then, was a gut decision in charge of multi-million dollar contracts? Because that's how they'd always done it. It's fair to say that baseball up to that point had been a tremendously insular culture. It's unfair, but much faster, to just call it inbred. Ballplayers who made it through pro ball eventually left the field to become scouts. Scouts moved up the ranks into management. Each stratum trained the next, with new scouts learning exactly how to scout from old scouts, until at the highest levels you had former high school ballplayers trying to recruit the current high school ballplayers that best reminded them of their younger self. This all stagnated thanks to the survivorship bias, where the only reference points in a broken system were people who had already made it through that system before. It was a closed loop with no gaps for new ideas to get in. So in the end, what got Billy Bean those runs? What rocketed the Oakland A's to the longest consecutive win streak the league had seen in 50 years? Was it some perfect rookie hires with faster feet and a higher rate of home runs? No. No, it was a handful of low-cost players that were experts at not swinging. You see, a player that doesn't swing at a bad pitch racks up the ball count instead of getting strikes. A ball count of four gets a walk onto base. A high ball count burns out the pitcher's arm as he has to throw over and over again in the same innings. The players that can spot a bad pitch will advance more runs for their team and wear down the opposing team by not swinging the bat. Not swinging the bat doesn't look like good baseball. Four walks don't look as good as one homer yet it gets you the same number of runs for less money. Walks were so undervalued in the baseball market that for decades they didn't even track them as a batting statistic. They were tracked as a pitcher's error, as if the man holding the bat had no say in the matter. Choosing when not to act was in itself a valuable act, but the market didn't appraise it that way. The men who didn't swing the bat had some of the fastest instincts and sharpest eyes in the entire league, and nobody gave two shits about them. Nobody but Billy Bean and the Oakland A's. The rest of the league thought Billy was assembling an island of misfit toys, all the while he was scooping up commodities with the highest utility for the lowest cost. Batting average was expensive and meaningless. Billy wanted walks, and walks came cheap. 90-mile-per-hour fastballs were expensive and meaningless. Billy needed pitchers to throw strikeouts, and plenty of them could do it in the 80-mile-an-hour range for less cash. Raw hitting power demanded premium salaries, yet it didn't correlate to getting runs. 
on-base percentage was a low-cost skill and it led directly to runs. In the end, Billy Bean still went to every meeting with his scouts, listened to everything they had to say, and then promptly ignored them. You see, years earlier, Billy had been a rising star himself. He had everything scouts said would make him into an all-star, and they'd been wrong. When he turned around and came back to the league as a scout and eventually manager, he knew that how we've always done it wasn't nearly good enough. It hadn't been good enough for him, and it should never be good enough for any of us. Old wisdom and gut reactions cannot steer a market. How we've always done it is a lazy shortcut, a familiar, comfortable heuristic for people to avoid decisions instead of ever making them. Thanks for listening. As always, I'd like to remind you that nearly all of my illustrious job titles come with the prefix armchair. If you're an expert and you're hearing me get something wrong, I'd like to hear from you. We'll get an email address set up for George, but in the interim, go ahead and send me an email at adam at speakingofbitcoin.show. That's adam at speakingofbitcoin.show, and I'll get your message to George. Plus, do let us know what you think about this. Like I said, we're excited to start doing more correspondence segments as we move forward into this new year and have, frankly, big plans for what's coming. Uh, but, uh, you know, what, what did you think? Uh, tell us what you think. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> adam at speakingofbitcoin.show. And we'll see you all next week.